1: Welcome to the Crux of the Story. This is Gary Sheffer, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike Fernandez. Mike, how are you? Terrific. Glad to be here with you. That's good. And and speaking of terrific, we have two terrific guests today, Carmela Glover and Denise Hill, who are here to discuss the Diversity Action Alliance, which is a coalition of PR and communications leaders who have joined forces to accelerate progress in the achievement of meaningful and tangible results in diversity, equity, and inclusion across our profession, doing really, really great work. And before we talk with Carmela and Denise, hey, let's turn to the news. So I've got a little bit of a semi-theme here, Mike, okay. today on some of our topic, but I want to begin by talking with you about how can we make some money off of this podcast, I'm always keen to make money. Okay, so, so hear me out here, Mike. The latest trend in podcasts, as you might have read, Apple and Spotify have launched paywalls for some podcasts, which of course have traditionally been, been free, and other platforms are expected to follow suit, putting some of their podcasts behind paywalls. For example, at Spotify, creators using their podcast platform, Anchor, will be able to mark episodes as subscriber only and publish them to Spotify and other podcast listening platforms the company said this week. And for the next two years, creators of those podcasts can pocket 100% of their subscriber revenue, excluding a payment transaction fee. And then starting in 2023, Spotify says it plans to introduce a 5% fee for access to the tool. Apple announced its podcast subscription service last week. It includes all of the tools needed by creators to offer premium subscriptions on Apple Podcasts for 20 bucks, essentially, annually. Apple's going to take a 30% cut from the podcast subscriptions, similar to what it takes for any transactions made via apps. That cut drops to 15% after the first year but it's still much larger than Spotify's fee. By the way, the crux is on both Spotify and Apple. Other platforms are expected to follow suit. This includes NPR and the New York Times, which both appear headed in that direction. Mike, do you think people will pay for podcasts? And should we get the crux on this, on this subscription bandwagon?
2: So Gary, my greatest fear is that there are some people who will want us to pay them to listen to us. (laughs) It's a good good point, Mike. (laughs) But seriously, there are some podcasts that have become popular enough Mm -hmm. that people may be willing to pay for access to them. I know there are some podcasts that I regularly listen to that I wouldn't want to go without. I like the New York Times, The Daily. I listen to Freakonomics with Stephen Dubner as well as the offshoot that he has now with Angela Duckworth, No Stupid Questions. (laughs) I listen to The Axe Files with David Axelrod, get my political fix. And I love Work Life with Adam Grant and Ad Weeks. Yeah, that's probably an ad. (laughs) That said, what we likely will see over time is what I believe will be a tiered system, not unlike what we see today in journalism websites as well as on cable TV, some podcasts will be free, others will be offered as part of a package with payment based on number of listeners, and still others with a large demand, we might pay premium prices for. While in our normal course of business as PR pros and crisis consultants, we like to say it's all about context. You know, in the media world, they like to say content is king. Yeah. So I guess we just need to buy ourselves some crowns.
1: <laughs> well, I think, you know, look, I'm I'm getting up there. I, I, I just feel like this might be the path to a comfortable retirement for you and I. There and, you go. I mean, the crux, you know, let us know how much you your listeners, how much you'd be willing to pay for this premium content you're getting right now. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I think you're right though, Mike. I think it'll be tiered. I do think people will pay. I certainly will pay for some of the... I think Malcolm Gladwell's podcast is really interesting. He's a neighbor of mine here in where I live in upstate New York, although he doesn't know it. I know he's my (laughs) neighbor.
2: Well, when he knows it, then we can start charging
1: people. Exactly. Good point. All right. So the next topic is somewhat similar, but it, it has to do with a decision by the New York Times. The Times announced last week that it's dropping the term op-ed on its opinions, co- opinion columns from outside writers. The reason the term op-ed comes from the fact that opinion columns appeared on the page opposite of the editorial. Yeah, page.
2: that's the historical context.
1: Yeah, so hence op-ed. And, and since most readers don't view these columns in a physical newspaper, the Times is ditching op-ed and replacing it with guest essay. So opinion editor Kathleen Kingsbury, who I think is the new op-ed, the new opinion editor at the Times, wrote that institutions like the Times can better serve their audiences with direct, clear language. And in the new arrangement, it appears editors hope the guest essay label will also erect a sturdier fence for the Times between uh, us and them, meaning the difference between staff of the times and outside contributors with the emphasis on the word guest and give the paper greater deniability should it publish something as contentious as that piece last year. Remember, like yep. Tom, Senator Cotton advocated mm. the use of US military in some American cities to quell some of the protests. And, and that actually led to the firing of the previous opinion editor at the time. So, others, however, such as the Columbia Journalism Review, see the commercial reasons behind the Times decisions. Perhaps it will seek premium payment for its Opinion Mm -hmm. Today newsletter, one of the most popular offerings from the Times, in addition to paying for, of course, your overall Times subscription. First, Mike, what do you think of the Times decision to drop the term op-ed? And would you be willing to pay extra for its opinion section?
2: Well, one of it walks like a duck, sounds like a duck, it's still an op-ed. Right. Two, I think what ruffles my feathers though is that the New York Times and others actually might use this as an approach to stop airing different points of view. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I think we need is is another echo chamber. I also kind of hate the idea that if the New York Times gets something radically wrong, that defames a person or a company. Mm -hmm. One loses a platform to set the record straight or to present your side of the story. So, you know, the the whole world now then becomes, you know, talk to the hand. Right. So, and and then lastly, I don't think I want to pay for another echo chamber if that's (laughs) what this leads to.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when Cotton's piece appeared as offensive as it was, you may remember the previous editorial page editor defended it at first, and then there was sort of an internal revolt at the times among some of its news side folks, and which ultimately led to the dismissal. You know, I I just think this isn't cancel culture discussion. I I love language. And the phrase op-ed has been around for 50 years. I think it's understood by most people, particularly people who do what we do. So I'm, I'm focusing strictly on the the words here the the term and i just think you know guest essay is it, it's just not a a meaningful replacement for op-ed everyone on, who is in this business understands op-ed the readers don't have to necessarily understand it in my view and i just think they're making a decision here that is is unnecessary from a you know from a language standpoint because mm-hmm. op-ed has has some rich, richness to it. I love the Times editorial uh, page. I do too,
2: I'm a big fan. In fact, I, I, I love going through the Sunday New York Times and really reading yes. everything that's in, you know, all, all the editorial content on, yeah. on the weekends, including sometimes their are editorial pieces in the New York Times Magazine. So
1: exactly. I,
2: it, it, again, I think it's, it, it really sets a high bar for most of that kind of content. And my one concern is, is that gonna go away?
1: Yeah, I agree, I agree. All right, so last topic on this subject, and you see the theme that's emerging. Mm -hmm. So I recently subscribed to two newsletters on Substack. Mm -hmm. This is the new site in which writers get paid directly for their work. Describing what they do, Substack says, we believe that writers bloggers, thinkers, and creatives of every background should be able to pursue their curiosity, generating income directly from their own audiences and on their own terms. When readers pay writers directly, writers can focus on doing the work they care about most. A few hundred paid subscribers can support a livelihood. A few thousand makes it lucrative. So. Substack has been incredibly popular in a short period of time, Mike. It's now has more than 250,000 paying subscribers, according to Forbes. And perhaps even more impressive, its top 10 publishers collectively bring in more than $7 million in annualized revenue. Well, wow. I, As I said, I subscribe to four, two which I'll mention, Beyond the Peloton, which is about Professional. Right,
2: getting ready for your races.
1: Huh? Yeah, the Giro d'Italia is coming up. The Tour of Italy is coming up. And here's one I, I, I highly recommend something called Letters of Note. And it's about interesting letters from historical figures mm. or just regular people who've written really compelling letters. And the latest post on this blog is a letter from Charles Lindbergh to Michael Collins, you know, Collins, who just recently passed away. Mm -hmm. piloted the Apollo command module in 1969 while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were bouncing around on the moon. In his letter, Lindbergh, who of course flew solo across the Atlantic, shares his sense of aloneness with Collins, which is, it's a really Mm. neat letter. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I, Letters of Note is the name of that Substack blog. So why, Mike, has this platform struck such a chord with people? And why are they willing to pay for this type of content? And have you subscribed any writers on Substack?
2: So I only just recently found out about Substack. So I I may indeed become a subscriber. There is, uh, you know, I, I think the answer to your question actually is pretty simple, though, is... We will all pay for community.
1: Yeah, great way. You know,
2: something that uh, you know we have a community of interest around, like your 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 Peloton rides. (laughs) I I think there's always a market for that. There's always an interest in, in that. And similarly, I think there is a market for words. It's taken some time to find that market. Be, you know, from the old way we used to buy books to buying it electronically, you know, to put on a tablet. And, and then all these other aspects in terms of how we're buying content online, it, it changes the game, but it doesn't change the human spirit. Yeah. And the human spirit is about wanting either that sense of community, or wanting words that that, that magnify a situation or inspire us. Yeah. And, and so I don't think that formula is ever going to go away.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It's, and look, I, I, I'm happy to see this success for sub, Substack. You know, the, the business model for mass media has eroded significantly, right? So it's hard for big publishers to employ a lot of writers. And now writers get to employ themselves and get paid directly for their work. And, and so i'm I'm really thrilled with it. I, I'd really suggest to folks out there who love good writing. And, and I think, Mike, your point, I hadn't thought of it about this sense of community. There's great sports writing if you're a sports fan on Substack. There's great culture writing. There's a, a really gr- terrific group of writers uh, writing about literature. but I, I love your your point, Mike, about this we all love community, and I think that's what Substack provides. Okay. So this is our last news topic of the year, Mike. I'm going to ask you about here. We're headed for our usual summer hiatus. I'm, you know, I think in summer hiatus, as I remember from my days with NBC, we can spend the summer renegotiating contracts, Mike. You know, I'm, I'm gonna, I need a bigger cut of the pie here. So I hope we're back. I hope we're back again in the fall. But
2: what do they say? A bigger piece of nothing is.
1: So anyways, uh, but um, look, 57 episodes over the past three years, it's been terrific, and I'm looking forward to getting back in the fall. But I I do want to reflect first on the past year, which has really been difficult for so many people. We've, on the crux, we've discussed the pandemic, racial and economic inequities, misinformation, layoffs, mental health issues, gun violence, and many other difficult topics, because listen, that's been the news. Right. So I, having known you for a long time, Mike, I know at your core, you're an optimist. So I want to turn it around in, in, in our discussion. In the face of this barrage of bad news and unexpected challenges, what development or piece of news from the past year gives you hope?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's such a great question. And reflecting on it, there are actually lots of indicators of good news and good news to come. I mean, first of all, you know, at one point we talked about, you know, the big communicators are the best communicators mm-hmm. for the last year. And one of the names we didn't appropriately put out there was, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yeah. But, you know, there's a point of inspiration. Another point of inspiration, and we've talked a lot about it on the show over the past year and actually for for the last 3 years is the role of business mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you know business people CEOs are becoming more intent around values and purpose and i love that the gen z's that are coming into the workforce who are sitting in in classrooms at universities like Boston University are going to keep them all honest and also had my eyes open to you know, people in the energy industry who I now work with, and I see a lot of them that are really committed about energy transition, mm-hmm. and, you know, reducing operational emissions of greenhouse gases to net zero. I was also buoyed by the result of the sh- in the Chauvin trial,
1: yeah.
2: given all that we had been through in the last year. I also am buoyed as as, as a Democrat, all of my life that there are Lynn Cheney's, that there are Mitt Romney's and there are jo- George W. Bush's in the world. And, and, and then lastly, I think one of the high moments for me over the past year was seeing the importance of words elevated mm-hmm. through the poetry of Amanda Gorman. You know, the, the, sort of the, the last graph of her, her poem, the inaugural poem she said we will rebuild reconcile and recover Mm. and every known nook of our nation in every corner called our country our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid the new dawn balloons as we free it for there is always light if only we are brave enough to see it. Yeah. I love
1: it. Yeah. Great moment. Great moment and and my sense of hope Mike is is I think the realization that from a lot of people coming out of this pandemic that not everything that's important in life mm-hmm. comes from Amazon or you know is reflected in your bank account. I, I think a lot of people have done a reassessment of their lives, and and look, there's nothing wrong with being successful and making yeah. money and all of that kind of thing. But uh, I do get a sense that family has had a, a renaissance, mm-hmm. and I think that's so important in our society. And I think part of the challenges we have, of course, is that the family unit. And I'm starting to sound like Newt Gingrich here, but I, <laughs> I don't mean it that way. Um, no, I know you don't. And, yeah. And- and-
2: you know, I, I think what you're getting at is a little bit of what we were talking about before. I mean, it's it's that sense of belonging.
1: Right? Yes, exactly.
2: Relationships matter.
1: Yeah, and, and Mike, I would say too. You know, as part of that, I look. I've been a Republican all my life, and I I'm, I'm so after four years of insanity, and callous, cold, inhuman in many cases policy. I was very buoyed the other night when Biden gave his state his speech to the joint session of Congress and outlined a gigantic program to help people who need help the most. People in poverty, people who are hungry, people who need jobs. Mm-hmm. And the readback on all of that from the polling and everything was that 85% of Americans agreed with him on what needed to be done. And that, for the first time, I saw the heart of America, who we truly are, and for the first time in a long time. And that gives me hope that we can't, long road ahead, there's fights already over the, you know, the details, but Mike, I just, I felt like, I I felt like for the first time it was the America that we all have held in our heart for a long time was on display for the first time in a long time, at least over the last four years, so... That's what I, that's why I'm hopeful.
2: Yeah, I'm also hopeful that I'll be back with you in the fall. Yes. And very hopeful to hear our guests in Carmela Glover and Denise Hill.
1: Terrific. Let's go to Carmela and Denise.
2: 58th episode of The Crux. We are honored to have with us the chair of the Diversity Action Alliance, Professor Denise Hill of Elon University, and the president of the Diversity Action Alliance, Carmella Glover. The Diversity Action Alliance is a coalition of public relations and communications organizations that have joined forces to accelerate progress relative to diversity, equity, and inclusion across the PR profession. Denise Hill, as chair, leads the board. Prior to earning her PhD, I believe at UNC, she was a chief communications officer for a number of companies, including Novartis, Quest Diagnostic, and Food Lion, which got acquired by what is now Ahold Del Hayes. Earlier in her career, Denise and I worked together at Cigna. Carmela Glover, as president, leads the day-to-day operations of the Diversity Action Alliance and also serves as the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Page Society. Prior to these roles, she was the executive director of the PRSA Foundation, and prior to that, she worked in various roles at L'Oreal, Procter & Gamble, and Johnson & Johnson. Denise and Carmela, welcome to the Crux. Thank you, Mike.
3: Thank you, Mike and Gary. Thank you so much.
2: We're thrilled to have you. Carmela, please share with our listeners a bit more about the Diversity Action Alliance, or DAA, as we sometimes refer to it in the shortened form. Give us a sense of mission, vision, who its members are, and, and how it all came to be.
0: Sure. Well, I'll, I will start with the, the idea for the entire Diversity Action Alliance, or the DAA, as you as you so nicely stated, was that it, it came out of an, an industry collaboration quarterly meeting. So on a quarterly basis, industry comms and PR industry trade organizations get together. They talk about trends and and best practices and just things that are happening in the industry. And you know, there was a theme of diversity, equity, inclusion, and our need to focus on it, our need to accelerate it. That came, you know, year after year as a focus. And out of that, one of the quarterly industry collaboration meetings came this idea that we're all doing our own siloed efforts towards improving DEI for the industry. Why don't we just collaborate and create a coalition that will serve the industry and kind of be a force multiplier for all of our efforts? And that grew into the DAA, which was it's still a cross-industry coalition. All of the trade organizations are, they make up our board. And so like the Page, PR Council, PRSA, we also have ColorCom, HPRA, Beeper. So we've got we've got a ton of industry, you know, groups who have come together and really united to, to drive our mission. And our mission is really to drive high-impact change towards shared industry goals, measure the profession's progress with consistent, standardized, and comprehensive metrics. So everyone's measuring on the same scale, and we'll talk probably more about that a little bit later. And so so again, be a force multiplier, because there's a lot of good work that's happening in the industry. And there's opportunity for us to collaborate, whether we're on the agency side or the the in-house practice side or nonprofit, there's there's opportunity for us to share best practices and kind of cross pollinate uh, for the greater good. So the other the other part of our mission is that we're we want to be a lever of accountability. For years, this has been a topic, and we've got to measure that change. And so the DAA seeks to be that lever of accountability for the industry. We have 250 organizations who've signed up to be a part of the the DAA, and it's it's really something historic to say that these organizations who might even see each other in some ways as competitors have come together to to make sure that our industry is is diverse and equitable and inclusive because particularly as communicators we are crafting brand messages we're chief spokespersons we're publicists you know we are really representing our clients and our brands and it's important that we resonate with you know all of our stakeholders especially our consumers and our customers so that's the reason why we're focused at the DAA on public relations and the corporate comes sector.
2: That's great. And Denise, it's great to see you involved with all of this. And as a practitioner and, and, and professor, my guess is that you have a lot of interest in those best practices that Carmela just referenced. And, and, and I'm kind of interested in, in how are you going about collecting and sharing these best practices, as well as providing tools and resources that might be helpful to others. Can you describe that effort?
3: Yes, well, the DAA on its website has a best practices resource center, and we are continually looking for best practices. And we have had organizations reach out to us and say, we want to make change and we need some help. So what can we do? And one of the things that we say is take a look at our best practices resource center and see what other organizations are doing. So we are always, always trying to reach out to our signatories to say, what is it that you're doing? Send us that information so that we can share it. Again, Carmel referenced the network. We have this big network of communicators. We are all working together to affect this change. We've been talking about this change for, for way, way too long. And so now we are focused on action. And part of the way that we take that action is we look and see what our peers are doing and others in other industries as well. So that's part of the reason that we started the Best Practices Resource Center. And that's part of the reason that we direct our signatories there. And we ask our signatories to share their best practices with us. And as communicators, we also have to realize that when we develop communications campaigns, part of our research includes best practices find out, okay, what has other company done in this initiative? So as a professor and as a former chief communication officer, part of the research that I always conducted was best practices research. I
0: would just add to that, actually, that, you know, as a part of the best practices resource center, we have, we know that there's not necessarily a documented best practice for everything. Some of the best organizations are just doing it. They don't have it documented. They don't have it written down. They haven't shared it. They're not doing it for the recognition. And one of the really cool resources we have for signatories is it's called the solutions finder. And let's say they're, I'll just give an example of the most recent one. Our company, the, each company will reach out and say, you know, I'm, I'm looking for X, Y, Z best practice, but it doesn't exist. I don't see it in your resource center. You know, look, can I reach out toward the vast network of signatories? And so, for example, one of the more recent ones was we're looking to expand our RFP process and include BIPOC-owned agencies. Is there a list of, of agencies that our signatory network might recommend? And as soon as that inquiry goes out to all, other, all the other 249 organizations and within 24 to 48 hours, it's, it's very similar to what Ted Matthews does with the, I think it's called the forum that he has, mm-hmm. but it's very similar. It was based off of that. He actually helped us to, de- to develop this. And within 24 to 48 hours, you've got answers from anywhere from 10 to 20 organizations who are letting you know. And Mike, you're, 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 you've participated in this often, so and we're very appreciative of it. Uh, we'll get a, a ton of answers that then become a documented best practice. So the DAA will document that and put it on our website for our signatories. And it's it's a really cool feature.
2: Almost like that old adage, many hands make light work. Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs>
1: Well, Denise and, and Carmela, welcome to the Crux. It's so wonderful to to have you on and to talk to you. And Denise, I know you worked with Mike in the past, so I have a lot of questions for you. That um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just looking. I'm just looking for explanations on something. <laughs> we'll, we'll, you know, Gary, we'll I that
3: think that's going to have to be a separate podcast. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah and if you've got an hour or two or maybe if you have like a 3 hour podcast because i oh no really
1: <laughs> i'm oh, with you no. i'm with you denise on that believe me <laughs> so before we go before we go there to, with mike pr week <laughs> recently shared some data on aggregate percentages of people of color working for some of the big agencies in the US and and it was interesting to see that some of the agencies are not reporting data on diversity. And so, Carmela, I know the DAA has been compiling data from agencies and from in-house comms teams of various companies. How is that effort going? And when do you think we'll see a report published on that?
0: It's going well, I would say, Gary. and We expect that we'll have a full, polished report by the end of this month but it has been I would say a long time coming you know previously there's been a lot of reticence and I guess we can tell from the recent data that's come out from PR week that there is still some reticence around sharing diversity data I would say there there are probably organizations who are not yet collecting this or who have just started collecting this data as a result of all the events of 2020 right so we have we have I think a, a really comprehensive, participation as far as this effort. And, you know, 250 organizations, for every organization that signs the that signs the the pledge, they agree to give the Diversity Action Alliance their data. So that is part of their commitment, and we're you know we have a really great participation level. We're going to see at the end of the month. I, it won't surprise anyone. I will say that as a teaser, the data will not surprise okay. them. <laughs> but the, what we can do is take the insights from that data and say, here's what can be done immediately as an industry, right? And obviously, it'll be case by case basis for each for each organization. But here's what we can do immediately. Here's what we as an industry we can do midterm and long term, but it's important to have those immediate actions we can take because the, the point is to, to act now and to make
2: those changes. Yeah, yeah. Corella, what were there were there any companies or firms that said, oh we're committed they signed they signed the document and then decided that they weren't going to provide the data?
0: <laughs> Interestingly enough, most organizations knew what they were signing up for. Good. I will say they knew what they were signing up for. We make it very clear Uh, Of course, there's organizations, there are, I would say leaders who agree, right? They are all for it. They're the best type of champions, but especially for some of the in-house shops, it requires the buy-in of the entire C-suite. So the CCO may be providing just his organization's or her organization's data, but because the company logo is going to be on our site, they've got to get the buy-in. And So a lot of times we see a lot of well-intentioned efforts, like we're signing the pledge, we're going to get this done. And then we've got to go through layers and layers and layers of red tape and decision making. Most of the time they do end up getting their data to us, but for organizations who, who are unable to, we yeah, still we, like it, to
1: yeah.
2: it. And we thought government bureaucracy was bad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, one of the challenges of being a CCO, that's kind of surprising because most, you know, Fortune 100 companies are, are publishing their diversity numbers in, in a enterprise wide sense. Mm -hmm. They're already doing that. So to, you know, boil it down to what's going on in comms doesn't seem to me to be, even if the numbers are bad, doesn't seem to be a difficult task. And I can, I can tell you, you know, someone who's in the classroom and talking to students about their next steps, students are looking at this data. And, and, and and we talk about it all the time when we're doing career counseling with students, they're looking at the agency. So for our listeners in house and in the big agencies or any agency for that matter, this matters to the people that that you want to, you want to recruit. So Denise, we, we've talked about the fact that you are CCO and, and, you know, somewhat related to the effort Carmella just spoke about is the DAA commitment. Uh, obviously, that we sign. And and so tell us about that pledge or commitment and what would be the advantage? So what do I get out of this, Denise, from coming forward as an agency leader or an in-house leader and being a signatory to the, this DAA effort?
3: So with diversity, equity, and inclusion, public relations and strategic communications industry, we have been talking about this for years and years and years. So this is not a new initiative. However, it's been in the talk stage. Mm. And so this effort with the Diversity Action Alliance and becoming a signatory is part of a plan to stop the talk and to focus on action. And one of the ways that we take action, and we do this as as CCO, so sometimes if you're developing a campaign and you want your constituents to do something, one of the ways that you get them to do that is by having them publicly say that they are going to do that. So somebody who makes a pledge, who makes a statement publicly is more likely, because you have put that out there, is more likely to follow up and to take that action. So that is the foundation for this process. So agencies have recognized that they have a problem with DE&I. They have said that they want to do better with DE&I in the past. However, they have not done better with DE&I. So this is a step for them to publicly commit, to publicly say, we are going to take action. Here is our data now, and we are going to make change and do better. Mm-hmm. So that is the foundation for this process. And that is why organizations, number one, should provide their data, should get to the pledge and should provide their data. So if you are really, really committed to making change, then you said that you were, take the action and start making the change. It's almost like uh, Nike, right? Just do it. <laughs> just do it. Enough already. Yes. Just <laughs> well, Denise, do it easy?
1: You know, Mike and I have talked on the crux before. But I think I took my first diversity training in 1986, right? And here we are. Yes. Right. So I think what you've just said is just so important.
3: Yes. 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 And I, Gary, you mentioned uh, the 80s, so I also was working, the 80s. <laughs> and diversity. <laughs> those of us who were working back in, in I know, it's hard. the 80s and diversity training was a big thing then yeah it's almost like diversity training was going to solve the diversity problem and look here we are in 2021 and we're talking we're still talking about it so so making that pledge and signing taking action saying that you are going to take action is a way to let's not repeat what we have done from the 80s and the 90s and 2000s and so on you know, that's such a,
2: a great point, that, that last one, uh, Denise, and in fact, we had a, a guest on some episodes ago, uh, Professor Stephanie Johnson, who's a professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder in the business school there, and she had a book that was published this past year called Inclusify, and we got into a little bit of a conversation with her about you know how people sort of post the events that happened in the past year how they race to hire diversity officers how they race to put in place unconscious bias training and not that those are bad things but if they're not linked you know, in a way that they actually promulgate some difference, some action. You know, it's not necessarily the healthiest of things to do. Now, I'm just curious, as a bit of a follow on to that last discussion, if we look at that data that was provided by PR Week, and and the fact that some of those PR firms opted not to share their data. Now, I realize that DAA's intent for now is to share aggregate data only. But if you were leading a communications team, like you used to, what would be your message to those firms that were not forthcoming either for PR week or not forthcoming with DAA? Do you hire agencies that haven't been transparent, that haven't shared that kind of information?
3: So as a former chief communications officer and a former chief communications officer who had a diverse department and who easily had a diverse department, so it was not difficult for me to make sure that my team, that I had diversity among my team. So we we can address some of that a little bit later, but so with, let me first address the DAA aspect versus the PR week. So the DAA, Mike, as you mentioned, that data is collected and communicated in aggregate. So there's not one agency or firm whose data is made public or called out. So my question to those firms, those agencies, and those corporations who are hesitant about providing their data. First of all, I would say, why? Because there's nothing surprising here. We all know as an industry, we all work in this industry, and we all know that we have this problem with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. So It's not like somebody is saying to a firm, oh, you have a problem, and you're the only one. You're not the only one. We are working on this together, So part of the process is for you, CCO or agency, to provide your data so that you have a baseline from which you can improve. We are trying to improve here. We are trying to affect change. And part of that process is for you to say, here's where I am now and here's where I want to get to. And that here's where I am now is the providing of the data. So I would say to firms to if you are actually committed, part of your commitment is providing the data. So if you're not providing the data, maybe you need to step back and take a look at your commitment and say, okay, are we really committed? What's what's our issue here? So and address those issues, because unless they are addressed, we as an industry, if all firms did this, are not going to make progress and going to be where we were in 1980 and 1990 and 2000. We're going to be in the same place again.
2: Sort of like, all. are you all in or not? Exactly. I, exactly. One, of the, one of the things that I think might happen, and we, we've begun to see it. I mean, a few years ago, we had uh, General Mills famously say that if an agency is going to work on our work from a marketing, advertising, PR perspective, we want diverse people to be a part of that account. And that similar work was done by HP as as well as by Verizon. So my guess is we'll see some more of that as well. So Carmela, do you think the events of the last year and the discussions around institutional racism in general have made it easier for companies and agencies to participate in data collection like what we're talking about, or have some entities simply become fearful for fear of being called out for what the data might show?
0: Yeah, I, I would say between cancel culture and, and, and people just being called out on, on it, it does create a, a sense of fear, but at this point, Diversity efforts, no matter where you are on the diversity effort spectrum, whether you're just in the beginning stages or, you know, you've been doing it for years, it's important to be transparent about it. I, mean, I would say beyond being a business case and a moral imperative, at this point, it's table stakes. It's literally the cost of entry. So for your clientele, for prospective and current employees, the last the events of the last year just make it obvious that this is important to a majority of your stakeholders. And I think I would we'd be hard pressed to find an organization that could say we don't, we don't think we have any or any stakeholders who care about this. So it is it's it's table stakes. <laughs> it is more talked about now. It is, I mean Denise talked about how her, you know, her students and Gary, you too, I think all three of you have talked about how students are asking about it. They're not just asking about it in their interviews. They're before they even get to the interview stage, they're not applying for companies that don't have some sort of positioning on it, on something value-based. So those
2: students students are very diverse, (laughs) as we see in the classroom, you know, (laughs) I I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you get to uh, Gen Z, the students that are in high schools and colleges now and some in their first jobs, you know, we're at a tipping point. It's like we now are at a point where literally like 50% of the population qualifies as diverse racially and ethnically.
0: Absolutely, and you know, good intentions really do have to translate into into good actions. So that's where we are.
1: So I, I, uh, I Kamala and Denise, I want to follow up on that on that, how you actually act, right, and and get into it. At first, I want to ask a question that you know we live in an age of activism, and you know, really constructive activism. I would say, for the most part, is it time for DAA? to be more activist. In other words, you're collecting data and I think that's very helpful and, and directional and, and baseline. And, and by the way, I will I'll get myself in trouble here. I don't buy that CCOs can't give you data. You know, having been a CCO, I was trusted to make those kinds of decisions. I didn't go have to go check with people to Now, I, I know people are in different situations but that's my opinion on some of that reluctance. But, you know, for example, you know, with the voting laws in Georgia, Texas, Florida, et cetera, that clearly are focused on restricting voting access. Is that, I'm using that as an example. Is that an issue that DAA should say, whoa, wait a minute here. This is something that we see happening in society that just isn't good or is it is the mission and purpose of what you're doing and what we're doing as a daa signatory different
0: i don't think it's different i and, okay. and and denise maybe you'd agree with me it's not different you know as an organization whose mission is surround is is completely about accelerating diversity equity and inclusion i mean you can't it's not mutually exclusive in the workplace from society i mean they're mm-hmm. they kind of trickle over and bleed into yeah. each other we we issued a statement on our position on the Georgia voting laws. We okay. do a little bit of advocacy. We've we've talked about the Stop Asian Hate effort. We are part of that kind of collective campaign, and that's that's part of what we do. We're 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 advocates, I would say. I don't it's know perfect. if we, if I'd say activists, but for sure we're advocates for diverse population.
1: That's a better word. That's yeah. a better word. I like that. I'm, <laughs> seriously, i seriously. I I really like that. And so I'm I'm happy to hear that. I I, I think it's. As we've the theme here seems to be let's stop talking to each other and start doing things. And I think that's that's one of the things. So th- speaking of doing things, so how do you actually hire and take action on this and, and you know get a more diverse public relations and, and communications team? Back in September of last year, the CEO of Wells Fargo, Charles Scharf. He had to apologize across the company after blaming the company's lack of diversity on, and I quote, a very, quote unquote, very limited pool of black talent. So, uh, you know, I have to think there are heads of agencies and CCOs who do not know how to find the pool of diverse talent, at least based on that comment and, and, and other discussions we've had. How do you do it?
0: Denise has a really good position on this. I love
3: to hear it. I just, I want her to
0: share it because her position on this is awesome.
3: Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Carmela. You're
0: supposed to lower
2: expectations, (laughs) Carmela. Yeah,
3: exactly. All right. So it starts with a a little bit of self-reflection, actually, and a little bit of self-awareness. And that self-awareness just has to do with society in general and the way we are as human beings. And one thing that I always say is that in the workplace, we're often asking people to do things that they don't do in their personal lives. And in terms of attitude and thinking and socialization, and obviously what you do at work and what you do in your personal life aren't always the same, but this has to do with attitudes and thoughts and with socialization. And there has been research to support that in terms of people and their friendships and who they have in their social circles. And people in their social circles and in their friendships usually have people who look like they do and are very similar to Mm -hmm. themselves. So if that's your life and that's what you've always had in your life, When you go into the workplace and you are being asked to behave differently and to think differently and to change an attitude, and the attitude could be an attitude of of unawareness and implicit behavior, not something intentional. It could be intentional or not. It could be implicit. But then you are in the workplace and all of a sudden you are asked to do something else. So I think part of it starts with a little bit of self-reflection and self-awareness saying okay in my in my life and again research has shown that and there's been some Pew research to this effect that people their friendships their friendships are usually with people that look like they do so when you go into the workplace and you are pulling from your network as a cco or a manager or a director a hiring manager You may within your network be pulling from people that look like you, and you may surround yourself as you do in your personal life with people that look like you. So I think it starts with a little bit of awareness of that and then saying, what is it that I can do to change that in the workplace because it's being required in the workplace. It's not, obviously we're not mandating that people do that in their personal life, but it's just a question. So in in your workplace, first and foremost, look around at your team. And with the Diversity Action Alliance and the the data, we are asking for data on for a CCO on your communications team. Mm -hmm. We recognize you're not the chief diversity, equity, inclusion officer. You're not being asked to provide data about the entire corporation. It's about your department. So first and foremost, take a look at your department and say, do I have a diverse team? And then say, why don't I have a diverse team? And then what is it that I need to do to get a diverse team? But again, it doesn't just start with getting a diverse team because it's not just recruitment. We also have a problem with retention. Mm -hmm. Say, for example, you have a team and you bring in one minority and that person is the only one among a large group. You may not recognize the, or have a sense of that person's experience. What is it like to be the only one? And so there are issues, not just with attraction, but issues with retention as well. Mm -hmm. So Just because you bring somebody in doesn't mean that that somebody within that organization is is going to be welcome there. You need to make sure that they are welcomed and that they are retained as far as, okay, so let's say that I am one, a CCO and I have not been aware of this and my team is not diverse, what can I do? So obviously if you have openings, make sure that you are always, always, always that you have a diverse candidate slate. And the statement that was made by the Wells Fargo CC CEO about a limited pool of black talent, that's appalling. And it is absolutely positively not true. And one thing I always say about CCOs, so I don't think there is a minority CCO that has ever said, no, I can't find any diverse talent. The minority CCOs are not saying that. So when I had my communications departments, I always, always, always had diverse teams. I always had diverse candidate slates. I made sure that recruiters that I was using, I told them, you must give me a diverse candidate slate. Then within my own network, I would reach out to somebody. If I didn't know somebody, I would reach out to somebody else or somebody else. So if you are a CCO and you say, okay, I'm aware of this. I don't know anybody. I'm going to insist that my executive search firm bring me a diverse candidate slate But then I am also going to reach out to people in my network. We have always talked about the communications network. And we have an an excellent communications network. We can reach out to each other. We are supportive of each other. We are often members of the same professional associations. And reach out to somebody and say, can you help me with this? Mm -hmm. If somebody had reached out to me when I was a CCO saying, I am trying to diversify my department and can you help me? Can you point me in the right direction? I would have been more than happy to assist and to provide names and references, whatever I could do to assist somebody else, to assist a fellow CCO in helping diversify his or her department. So Mm. just a few of the things uh, that we can do. But I think it starts with this level of, of awareness about ourselves and what we do and who we surround ourselves with in our lives.
1: It's so smart. You know, that, that is really smart advice and observations. I, I can give you a short story that on this existing networks and practices, we had a recruiting back in the day, you know, 110 years ago when I was the CCO at GE, and we had a re- recruiting program for undergraduates for, a, you know, sort of a developmental program in communications. And uh, we b- recruit 10 undergraduates a year. And in one year I said, let's try to make sure that half of the our recruits this year are diverse, are diverse, you know, people. And it came back and we, you know, and I, I can't mandate this, but I can suggest it in, in a conglomerate of that kind, a matrixed organization. And it came back, we didn't have any after we were done recruiting. And the response was, well, we recruit at Colleges and universities that don't have a lot of diverse candidates, a lot of diverse students. And I said, Well, we're going to re- recruit elsewhere now going yes. forward. And it is, it's that existing practices and relationships and networks that. In some cases, prevent you from achieving the goal that everybody agrees on, right at the at the beginning of the process. Yes. All right, Carmela, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You worked at some great companies over the years, J and J Procter and Gamble, L'Oreal. Any lessons, best practices? You're you're collecting best practices now. Yes. Any anything you could point to today as an example, either from that experience that you had or what you've seen after that?
0: Yes. Yeah, so I. Well, first, let me go back. I just wanted to add something on that previous statement is that for, for any leaders who think that there is a, you know, a lack of of diverse talent, uh, there are way too many affinity groups that you can reach out to here. For example, the beepers and the HPRAs and the color comms and, you know, the, the National Black Association of Journalists, there's, 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 there's affinity groups for every group that you can reach out to, and they'd be happy to provide you talent At every level, right, not just because most of the time with with college graduates, you're looking at entry level, but at every level you can find them. And partnering with, you know, Greek organizations, there are historically Black and Hispanic Greek organizations that have professional, like thousands of of professionals. And, uh, you know, there's there's been studies that that have come out that say, you know, they're the, the most educated population at this point, based on degrees conferred are African-American women. So it's it, it's really it's really just not true that there's a lack of talent. And I know, you, you know we, we've kind of discussed that. But from my experience, I will say particularly at Procter & Gamble and J&J, they, they do it well. They both do it well. And for two reasons. One, because before it was trending, before it was popular, before 2020, was, which is when I worked for these organizations, they were doing the work, particularly at p Their diversity efforts are not relegated to like the diversity checkbox. They are part of leadership training. And so you may not necessarily go to a training and, I, you know, this was like an aha moment for me when I realized it, you know, after I, I moved on to another company, I realized, you know, the, the trainings there were so impactful, but they were never called diversity training and they were called leadership training. And you were learning to be an inclusive leader. It was part of, All of the other trainings you got, you know, how to, you know, manage a departmental budget and then how to manage a, you know, a a section or a unit budget. So that was a best practice for me. Not, not calling it diversity and inclusion training. It's, it's leading with empathy. It's leading with courage. It's leading with, you know, not just a business mind, but almost like an emotional intelligence, emotional logic, I should say. Because there's no, logic is not removed from it. So I think that was, that was really empowering for me. They're also both Procter & Gamble and J&J. They really live by their values. So before the business roundtable kind of redefined the purpose of a corporation, J&J's credo has always started with their customers first. And their, you know, their investors are, are at the bottom of the list. Their investors are still a priority, but they're not the first priority. As, as an organization who's making medicine and, and, you know, disease curing drugs, and it was it's important to them that their first stakeholder is the consumer and they like that was not only was it plastered everywhere it was truly a compass for the organization and how decisions were made and that trickles down into like into diversity equity and inclusion in that you know your your consumers everyone gets sick as humans we all get sick we all need Tylenol at some point in our lives so for me that was something that we looked at and talked through when we made business decisions and it was Im- impactful for me as a young professional, when I was working for J&J to see that the leaders there would refer to the organization's values when making major business decisions. And I think that's, it's not something you see everywhere for sure.
1: I love the, I love this distinction of leadership training, Carmela. It really is so smart. Yeah. Yes, absolutely.
2: You know, that, that that brings me to another question is, you know, for years, we've already talked about companies talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and we've talked about the need to act. Are there other things that we should be doing or thinking in order to prompt
0: them to act? I, I will say my personal opinion on this is investing, deliberately investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, and not necessarily as a separate effort, but if it's gonna impact the bottom line the same way all of the rest of the performance metrics do, uh-huh. why, why shouldn't it be a part of the bonus and performance structure? That's an incentive right there, because especially when it comes to like things, for example, uh, we've gotta make sure we maintain a certain amount of accounts. Like account retention and new business development, they're part of our performance metrics and because they affect the bottom line. They, they directly affect how well we do as a business for the year. These are things we review on a quarterly basis. If diversity, equity, inclusion is going to affect the bottom line, which we know it is because of research, the growing body of research that continues to say this, then why, are not, why aren't we investing in it the same way we invest in advertising spend? The things are going to make our business profitable. So in my personal opinion, what I've seen best practice, you know this, Mike, this is a best practice, make it a part of the, of the bonus and the incentives. I, I bet it will get done. I bet it will get done at
2: that yeah. point. What well, gets measured gets done, right? Mm-hmm. So, so 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 Denise, taking that in kind of a different direction mm-hmm. given your background, how do you work with executive recruiters? How do you work with HR departments to make sure you have that diverse? candidate base? And what can and should CCOs do to develop internal prospects who might someday become the future CCOs?
3: So working with HR departments as a CCO, first of all, as I mentioned before, you insist upon it. So if your HR department comes back and and says, I'm having a hard time finding a diverse candidate slate, you push back and you demand that diverse candidate slate my last CCO job, when that job was open, the CEO of that company said, because the initial pool of candidates that came in, it was not a diverse pool of candidates. And he insisted for the my CCO job, which was open, he insisted, he said, this isn't right. I, I don't understand why you can't get a diverse candidate slate for this position. So he pushed back. On the hiring manager who pushed back on the executive search firm and said, "Bring me diverse candidates." So as CCOs, we the, these are our departments. We are responsible for hiring. So we we need to push back as CCOs and say, "I am, must have a diverse candidate slate," and those candidates are out there. Unlike what that Wells Fargo CCO said, CEO said. Mm -hmm. There is a rich and robust pool of all candidates. There's a rich and robust pool of diverse candidates. So we need to make sure that we are interviewing those candidates. The other thing that we can do is make sure that as we are growing our teams, and hopefully we have diverse teams, but making sure that we are providing career development and training to all of our employees and using programs such as the PAGE Diverse Future Program. I have had the pleasure of being a speaker at that program and I see the talent in that program and it is an outstanding program. And you can see that the talent there, the level of mid-level managers, our next generation of CCOs is outstanding, just outstanding. So we need to make sure as CCOs that we are taking all of our employees And our diverse employees, and making sure that we develop them so that they are going to be the next generation of successful CCOs, and that they have an opportunity to do so to become that CCO should they desire to do so. So, Denise, one of the
2: things that I think would be good is, you know, you mentioned earlier that individuals like ourselves don't always have the same challenge. You and I work together all the way back in the early 2000s. And in fact, I think I joined Cigna, you were already there. Yes. And so and it was 2000 that I joined. Tell people what was it like in the sense of, what was our leadership team like then? This 2000, this 21 years ago. Yeah,
3: yeah, and I think I joined Cigna in 1994, 1995. So, and the communications department was a large communications department, very, very large communications department. So in addition to when Mike joined, in addition to having Mike at the helm of that department, so we have a minority at the helm of that department in Mike Fernandez. And then he had a number of direct reports, including me as a vice president, as a black female. And then there was a, a black male, the vice president of government relations. We had a vice president- We hired
2: him in after I was there, yeah. Yes,
3: a vice president of community relations who was who was already there. And then within those teams, within- Oh,
2: we the, also hired a, a, a new person in investor relations in Greg Devins.
3: That's right. I forgot about Greg, yes, Greg Devins, yes, yes. So, and again, at the VP level. And then within those VPs, we all had diverse teams with, For example, my direct report, the VP of government relations, his direct reports, the VP of community relations, his direct reports, and so on and so forth. So within that very large communications department, which was spread over a number of different locations, we had diversity within the communications team. So if Mike had had to provide his data in 2000 to the DAA, if there had been a DAA, number one, I have hesitated to do so, right,
2: Mike? It'll look pretty good, I think.
3: It'll look pretty good. Yeah. So, so Carmela, Denise
2: mentioned this program, Diverse Futures. I Wonder if you could tell our audience a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Diverse Future uh, was originally just for journalism and the media side of of communications, and Mark Carter, who is the co-founder of, uh, of Diverse Future, and Karen Arita brought it over to Page to the DNI subcommittee and Roger. And so for the last four years, it is an annual week-long program designed to strengthen the executive positioning of diverse senior communications executives. So they are folks who are on Page member teams. So Page members are are typically global CCOs. They you know they have that purview and they they identify high performing diverse talent to send. It's a week long program. Intimate. Classes are limited to 12 participants, and they become a part of a cohort, like a tight-knit peer network, and they have opportunity to access mentors who will be there even beyond the program. They hear from amazing speakers. Denise mentioned she was a speaker. They have speakers from Harvard Business School, and it's an opportunity for them to gain insights, learn best practices, receive feedback on their skills, but also to talk about the unique journey that they have as people of color in a safe space, you know, navigating through the public relations and corporate communications world. There, there are in undoubtedly going to be experiences they have and need to navigate through that they may not necessarily feel comfortable talking about with, with people who are non-minorities. So it's an amazing program. They've, you know, diversefuture.org for, for more information on it. And I, I always encourage PAGE members who are looking to help their senior diverse staff move on to that, to prepare them for that CCO position, really, to, to, to try to join this this course
2: yeah no it's an amazing program and the, the, the person who runs it in Mark Carter who actually started the initiative I think through some grant money from Ford Foundation and and some other foundations I think Knight Foundation was was one of them as well but started with journalists in mind and, and then moved on to to PR as you depicted but but Mark was a, a television news producer and then he decided he was going to go off to Harvard Business School and then he went to work for McKinsey. And then he ends up becoming the head of strategy for CNN. And then he ends up starting his own production company and everything else. But the people as a consequence of his experience that he brings around the table are just amazing. You know, marquee named journalists, some of the top people in PR, communications and marketing. It's a fabulous program. So so thanks for that. One last question for you both. What's your best advice to a newly minted either head of an agency or a chief communications officer who aspires to be a diversity, equity, and inclusion champion, but whose team at the outset may not be all that diverse?
0: Carmela, you first. Sure. uh, For for one, I would say to find that agility bone. (laughs) It's all about change management because action has to happen for things to change. And two, to really be an exemplar of that change, to live it. If it's really important to you as an, as a, as an officer of the organization, live it again in your personal life and in your work life, be an example of it, be a champion and, you know, point out the things that take courage to point out, you know, to across the organization, but especially within your team and think things are going to have to change. It's going to be uncomfortable. But I think agility is going to be our, our best friend at this point.
3: Denise? I would say, don't be afraid to say that in this area. So I think some people are, people are afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or saying they don't have it. They don't have the knowledge or, you know, my team is not diverse right now. I don't want to provide my data. So don't be afraid to say, I am not getting this right right now. And I wanna get it right. And I just don't know what steps to take. I don't know what first steps to take. I don't know what next steps to take. Do not be afraid to reach out. Don't sit there in a sort of realm of inaction because you are afraid to take action. So this is the time of action. This is, we need to stop the conversation that we've been having. We need to stop all the, the outputs that we've been producing, the, the diversity training and the newsletters and the statements of, the, of support. And we actually need to affect change as, as Carmela mentioned. So recognize that you are a change agent, recognize that you own this, that you can actually, this is a very, very important time for our industry. And each CCO agency head, you can actually make a difference now Now is the time, and you have the power to make a difference. So grab a hold of that that power and make the change. Start by identifying, here is what I need to do. Here is where I have gaps. Here's what I don't know. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm not good at. Here's where I need to make change to diversify my department or diversify my agency. And start taking those steps now. And remember that part of it is obviously becoming a DAA signatory, but the the ultimate outcome is not signing. That's, we're not stopping at the signing. So that's a step. But the ultimate outcome is to make improvements and to affect change with diversity, equity, and inclusion in our industry. We have been talking about this problem for way too long. It's time that we make change and that we rectify the problem and we need to do that now and we all have the power to do that so that's what we need to do.
2: Thank you Denise Hill. Thank you Carmela Glover. The organization is the Diversity Action Alliance. They can be found online at diversityactionalliance.org. We look forward to its upcoming report on diversity within the PR and communications industry. The findings should provide some very interesting insights into where our focus should be and what immediate actions need to be taken. Thanks again to both of you for being on The Crux. Thank
0: you for having us, Mike and Gary. Thank you.
3: It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.